Hey everyone, this is Bradley Chalopsky, co-founder and editor-in-chief at MerchantFraudJournal.com, and this week we have part two of my conversation with Bruno Farinelli, head of fraud analysis and data science teams at ClearSale, and he's going to be talking about how to sell in risky markets, fraud-induced PR nightmares, and the most common mistake he sees merchants making that leave them open to fraud. It was a great conversation, really appreciate Bruno coming on the podcast. Be sure to check out the first part of the episode, if you haven't already, so that you can move into this one smoothly. And as always, you can get the latest merchant fraud tips and tricks at merchantfraudjournal.com. Other question that I have is, I think the one that unfortunately is asked a lot, which is, it seems like in this particular instance, this was all enabled because of a high risk and, and kind of low tolerance for law area. And I know that this is a major area of concern for a lot of merchants. Mm-hmm. You're talking about possibly inside jobs at the post office. You're talking about information being randomly placed onto envelopes and people just kind of getting it there either way. Things that might not happen in other jurisdictions and other areas. So I'm curious what your take is on how merchants can prevent and strike a balance with selling into these markets while also protecting themselves. Because obviously Brazil is a huge market uh, with Mm -hmm. a lot of money to spend and cutting yourself out of that market wholesale and just not selling there is going to cost you money. So the question becomes, how do you strike that balance where you're in those markets, but still making them profitable despite the barriers that might be there? So I'm curious to get your perspective on that, both being a national, a Brazilian national, mm-hmm. and also working in the industry. No, perfect. Even though it's been five years that I, I, I don't actually analyze anything from Brazil, what I can tell you is that the fraud rate in Brazil is 2%. This is higher than what we have here in the United States, almost two times higher, but it's still, you still have 98% of good customers trying to buy something from your website. So you definitely don't want to miss on that. And while you're correct that the laws here, they allow fraudsters to do a lot of things they wouldn't if there were, there were more strict law in places. Uh, the reality is that it's hard to count on the law to make fast advancements, right? Like those things, they're not going to change from one day to the other. We do hope for a future with more pressure from merchants, from clear sale, that fraudsters are going to be prosecuted more seriously. So the way for a merchant to deal with this right now is to actually invest in fraud prevention. There are several technologies, uh, companies, outsourced or not, that can offer you very good insights when it comes to Brazilian transactions. And ClearSale is simply one of those companies, but there are several out there. And there are several sources of information out there as well. So, but understanding that fraud is a local problem is the key. The way to analyze a transaction from Brazil it's totally different from the way to analyze a transaction from the United States. For Give example. me an example. Give me an example. Uh, when, whenever you are analyzing a transaction and you're 
opening a Google Maps to see the address. The way you are going to interpret that address, if it's low risk or high risk, it's going to drastically change. And I can tell you that because we have analysts in the United States and in Brazil. So we know, we, we see the difference in their evaluations every day. So what someone from the United States might believe to be a low risk, uh, high risk address in Brazil, if a Brazilian analyzes, he's going to say, no, nah, this is okay. So I have another question, which is that I'm curious if you ever had to try to convince a merchant to enter into a market that they perceived as being high risk or to increase their activity in that area where they were really adamant that they just didn't want to go into that kind of a market. And if yes, what your advice to them was or how you were able to convince them if you were to mm -hmm. enter that market several times and i don't even need to go to another geograph geography to give you this example uh we have an example on our day to day in the united states which is avs a lot of course a lot of our clients they have avs filters in place and those they might hurt your revenue you know right. what we find here at clear sales that the percentage of orders that an AVS filter would decline that is really bad, it's something around 5 to 10%. Right. So you're losing 90% of good orders. And in the end, you know that a lot of customers nowadays, they don't want to have the, the, the work of giving you an actual billing address, a shipping address. They might not be updating billing addresses with their bank. Right, so so there curious, were several instances. Are they doing that because I, I want to make sure we stay focused on the geography. Mm -hmm. And if there hadn't been any instances of this, that's fine. But I'm curious to know if you've ever had a customer come to you and, and say, I want you to turn off orders to Brazil or that yes. it's when you've said like, we're not, you know, why aren't you selling to Brazil? They say, well, that's a bad country to sell to. Uh, and what you say to those people and what those conversations look like and if you were successful in getting them to change their mind and if so, how, and if not, why not? No, and a lot of, and yes, this also happens a lot, Brad. In most of the cases, we were able to convince them, but our product works very well when it comes to this because one of our flagship products, it includes a chargeback guarantee, right? So whenever I'm telling them, you can ship to Brazil. And if there are any fraudulent orders that are approved, we are going to cover you. It makes it easier for them to dip their feet in the water to see how it's going to go. But in all of those instances, the results were successful. Right. And I imagine the hesitancy there, even with the chargeback guarantee, is because they're worried about their approval rates and they don't want to get put on the blacklist for getting too many. Exactly. Yeah, too many declines. Um, so how long does it usually take for them to overcome that fear and to see that with the right technology and the right um, filtering and, and just the right approach that you're able to allow them to sell without getting close to that threshold? Does it take them a couple of days, take a couple of weeks? It depends. If he's already declining, uh, if, if there is like a... a 
uh, a, a reprimanded demand in there. So orders that he's declining because of this. The efforts are going to be instantaneous because we had some cases in which a client saw a 10% increase on his revenue from one day to the other because of this. Wow. Yeah. In, in some cases, because, you know, like, uh, as you said, Brazil, we have a lot of money. Brazil is a country that has a lot of money, a lot of people wanting to buy. And some products, they are very trendy in Brazil. And depending on what you're selling, it might be very attractive. So in this case, he was already declining a lot. And we could see that a lot of those were actually good orders. In other cases, after three months, uh, an e-commerce realizes that the chargeback levels coming from Brazil, they are inexistent or very low and under control. And they understand that even if it's on a lower percentage, it's simply uh, a safe revenue stream, right? Right. All right. So we've been talking about a couple of different options. I, I think we can go for the whole, the, the, the three. Mm -hmm. People like things in threes. So let's go for one more, even though we only have a couple of minutes left. Uh, another another instance for us to talk about. Uh, another one that one another one that I really like is when the fraudster is pretending to be a reseller. Did you ever hear about this one? No, that's a new one. So, fraudster is going to reach out to you, Facebook, Instagram. He's going to be, oh, I'm a reseller for store ABC, and you can buy with me, and it's gonna be cheaper. So he's go. You're, if you're innocent enough, you're gonna believe him, and then he's going to be placing orders using all your information, but obviously a stolen credit card. So it makes easier to catch. But still, let's assume uh, an e-commerce would be calling you to verify that you would be confirming that you placed the order, and you would be confirming that it was with the store ABC because an agent from the store called you, right? Right. So what's, so what's interesting to me about this is it's extremely forward. It's, it's talking directly to the person. I don't know that I've ever really heard of this type of an attack vector before from a fraudster where you have someone who is calling up the person and asking them to take their credit card details. Now, obviously, we should all know. No, no, no. Yeah, he, you're, you're not going to ask. The fraudster doesn't ask for the details of the credit card of the person. Okay. He's going to use someone else's credit card. But he's going to buy for you, and you're going to pay him directly without your credit card, you know? Okay. Like, I got you're you. going to so, send money through Vimo for him. Okay. So the scam is that you're basically telling someone that you can get it for them cheaper because you're whatever whatever exactly. story you come up with so in I'm this really case the fraudster is counting with the innocency you know, of ones whoever he's talking to but if you go if, if you search on dark web even on facebook you're gonna find sometimes fraudsters that they are simply offering their services like tell me what you want to buy and i'm gonna buy it for you and i'm gonna sell it for cheaper gotcha so in this type of a in this type of a scam i guess it's really preying on people who feel like that they can kind of get one over on the system and end up getting something for less than they normally would have paid for it. I'm curious on the merchant end if that, I guess it doesn't look any different than a, a different type of fraud, would it? 
No, it wouldn't. The only the only flag that a merchant would need to be careful with is if there was a, a phone validation process. Because if you call the customer, he might be simply saying that he bought that. Right. And sometimes because he innocently believes that he bought that from a representative. In some cases, because he understands what's happening, but he still wants to get it cheaper. So he's clearly being an accessory to fraud. So are you seeing, I, I hinted at this before, but I'm curious mm -hmm. with, with this one specifically, do mm -hmm. you hear stories from merchants that they, their customers or these, these people that are getting scammed that it, it gets out into the community because the danger here from a merchant perspective is that somebody's going to go on Facebook and say, Walmart called me to see if I had placed this order and it was fraud. And why didn't they stop it? Even though obviously from Walmart's perspective, it's, it's really difficult and they're just, they're just calling up and saying, did you place this order? And people are saying yes. And they think that they're, getting one over on the system. But I'm, I'm curious if merchants take this threat seriously. And if you've ever heard of any instances where there's been a PR nightmare that's come about because somebody put something on Twitter or Facebook that this merchant called, said it was okay, which of course is not what they're really saying. They're just asking to follow up, but that's not how it's going to be interpreted by the person getting scammed. So do you see stuff like that? with merchants going on? Yes. Obviously, the, the biggest PR, PR cases we saw were related to decline orders that shouldn't be declined. But we do see these cases eventually because the, the, a defrauded customer is going to be very upset. And some might understand that they can release all of their upsets with the bank. That also was a party that could have intercepted this action. But some of them, they're going to be upset at upset with the merchant you know because in the end they're gonna go, they're gonna have to go through all the make a new credit card process and if you have subscriptions you have to update all of your subscriptions and so goes on so they're going to release their frustrations in the merchant and indeed the merchant couldn't have the power to avoid that it's it's one or not it's one of those costs of a chargeback that they are hard to measure but they're definitely there right yeah, for sure, because I can definitely see how people would be very upset because then you're having an interaction with the business. So now you already feel like the business is somehow giving its blessing to this transaction because they've contacted mm -hmm. you when obviously that's not the case at all. But the Internet doesn't care about that. Once you jump on Twitter exactly. and start saying this person, this merchant, yada, yada, yada it can quickly get out of hand and then somebody else says, Oh yeah, I had an issue. Even if it's a different type of fraud, they might say I had an issue. And then all of a sudden you have this snowballing effect of negative social media presence, which companies do not want. So it's definitely something to consider. And what would be a best practice? Obviously you're calling to, to verify should merchants make a habit of asking people did you do this through an online interface or an exchange? Yeah. Or is that too intimate and you find that that turns people off and it's not worth the trouble to the business? We, we are very, 
restrictive when it when it comes when it comes to the actual necessity of making phone validations and and the, and the rewards this might come. But in this case, when we had a similar case in the past, it was from our, an airline company, but the same idea. So a fake tourism agency trying to sell tickets. The question we made that made it all clear is simply to confirm the amount that was paid in that transaction. Because then that cus the customer would give us usually the, the discounted amount and not the amount on the transaction itself. So when we realized that a lot of customers were giving half of the amount that the transaction was actually worth it, we realized that there was something wrong. So those are the cases that you need to call to that. And then obviously we worked with our clients so they could be calling those customers to explain that they were scammed just so they could know that they didn't buy a ticket from that, that website exactly, but from a fraudster. So what are those conversations like? They must be super interesting when, when you Yeah, I, I, I never, and the, the ones to let them know that they were being frauded by a scammer, I never, I never participated, sadly. <laughs> the hard ones are the ones in which the customer knows what's happening. And he still wants to mislead you because he, well, he's committed into being an accessory to fraud. Those are the hard cases. Gotcha. And sadly, we have seen a lot of examples nowadays of uh, open doors to customers that want to commit fraud, right? Like return fraud, promotion abuse, a lot of things that a customer can be doing if he wants to profit out of website. Right. Yeah, I'd imagine that those are really difficult conversations to have. And then if you find out that the person, I guess, was in on it somehow is what you're kind of suggesting, that would yes. probably be even more difficult. Um, exactly, because then this phone call. Yeah, because then this person is going to one is going to answer the questions you make. So you're yeah, saying that they're going to answer the questions properly and then <laughs> exactly and then it's going to make it that much more difficult. Yes, exactly. Wow. All right. Well, Bruno, I really appreciate your time coming in. It, it's uh, amazing. We've already been talking for a half hour. So I really appreciate you sharing uh, all these great stories. And I'd love if you want to give kind of a last word on how you think merchants could be doing more to prevent fraud right now. Maybe one tip or one thing that you see very often that allows for these types of really off the wall types of scams to be successful and what merchants can be doing to change their perspective in order to take these types of fraud attacks into account when they're building their prevention strategies. I think it's being careful with deviations, you know, like if you're usually selling, if, if you have a good uh, high volume and you're usually selling 10 orders a day for a specific state, if that number goes to 200 orders in a week out of nowhere, there might be something wrong behind that. So you might be checking on what's really happening. And this is on a high level. On a low level, a lot of the instances we had the chance of speaking with people that would be working on e-commerces with shipping, for example, they would know when something was wrong because they are seeing the labels they are printing every day 
and they can see whenever something is wrong or not. So being connected to, to the floor of your company is also very smart to find some cases like this one. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bruno. Really appreciate it. And you're welcome on the podcast anytime. Thank you, Bradley. It was a pleasure. And if anyone has any question, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So feel free to add, share some, exchange some messages. We'll be happy to make some connections. Awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.